This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, I am Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I'm here today with my old friend of 30 years, Jason Poling, who's an Anglican priest serving at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Baltimore. And Jason and I will be in discussion about Leviticus 10.1, The Strange Fire. Jason, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. So Jason, tell us the context of 10.1, The Strange Fire, and who are Nadav and Abihu? Well, Nadav and Abihu are Aaron's sons. We, we're here in, in Leviticus 10, of course, having gone through Leviticus chapters 1 through 9, which are extensive and detailed instructions about how sacrifices are to be offered in, uh, in the, uh, the sanctuary. And specifically after chapter 9, which involves the consecration of Aaron and his sons as priests. And so here we come to... 10.1, and the sons of Aaron, Nadav and Abihu, they're at the altar. They each took out their fire pan. They each put fire in them, placed incense upon it, and brought before Hashem, before God, a strange fire. Mm-hmm. Now, this strange fire had been specifically prohibited previously in Exodus 39, when the kinds of fire and other things that you were allowed to bring to the altar were prescribed, and the strange fire was specifically prohibited, but they bring it anyway. Mm -hmm. And what happens when they bring this alien fire, this strange fire to the altar? A fire comes forth from before Hashem and consumes them, and they die before him. Now, we know that their whole bodies weren't uh, consumed because there uh, there were corpses left to be dragged out by their, uh, their cousins. Very interesting. Right. So the corpses are later dragged out by their cousin, which means the, which one would think that a fire would consume an entire body, but in this case, it does not. Nope. So what do you think is the sin of Nadav and Abihu that was so significant that got them killed? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And, and the rabbis have all kinds of ideas about that. Uh, some would say that because shortly after this, uh, we get a clear prohibition against being under the influence of strong drink hmm. when bringing uh, service in the, the Mishkan, that... Uh, the implication some some take there is that Nadav and Abihu were inebriated, and that uh, because they weren't sufficiently clear-headed, they did something that they shouldn't have done. Others say that uh, the 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 sin that they committed was was uh, rendering a judgment in the presence of their teacher, uh, usurping his place. It, it's interesting. It it was it was as I was reading in in my commentaries, it was suggested by by some Gentile commentators. Uh, I didn't see it in any of the Jewish commentaries that they were offering fire or, or incense according to the rites of of some sort of a foreign cult or a, a, the worship of a of a false god. Whereas most of the, the rabbinic commentators regarded Nadav and Abihu as being especially honorable, especially worthy people. So the assumption, I guess, was that they would never have thought to do that. Maybe they were simply going out of enthusiasm to offer worship in a way that was that had not been prescribed. And, and I think that gets to the problem of, of what they did, is they were certainly in a fit of religious enthusiasm, mm-hmm. and 
they offered a prohibited fire. So God had been very specific about the kind of fire that he permitted. And here they offer a prohibited fire, mm-hmm. thus translating their religious enthusiasm to religious extremism. Right. So I think here we see some early religious extremists and what happens to them. They are not offering God what he wants. Mm-hmm. They are offering God what he specifically does not want. Yeah. Well, and Rob Soloveitchik is, is, I think, really insightful on this. He says he distinguishes between the Jewish way and the pagan way mm. of achieving a sense of of uh, religious transcendence, experiencing joy and satisfaction in performance of, of a mitzvah. He says the Jewish way requires us to fashion our lives according to God's discipline, whereas the pagan way is, is basically to shortcut that and, and simply to begin with excitement, but it, that culminates in sin and disillusionment. He says it parallels the approach of the modern world where one uses drugs or alcohol to create an artificial feeling of euphoria, masking one's actual life situation of disappointment and futility. What, what we're called to do, he says, is to walk in obedience, is to follow what God has told us to do. And he says, as we do that, then we will develop a greater joy and excitement in performing the mitzvot that, that uh, we're called to. Very interesting. And I think an amplification of that point, perhaps that they their religious extremism manifested in doing what God prohibited, even though they had the enthusiasm, the intentions don't matter to the extent that they were acted out in extremism, is that Judaism from the moment that Adam is created all the way up through the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, emphasizes that we each have to get married. We each have to get married and we have to be fruitful and multiply. There are no exceptions. And in Numbers 3-4, which is, I believe, the only other time that we learn about Nadav and Abihu specifically, is when we're told that they don't have children, Hmm. which leads one to believe that perhaps they had either invented or joined a religious cult that was centered around, as you said, strong drink and perhaps drugs, which... Mm -hmm. and. We can surmise that was the case because one of the first things to be prohibited subsequently is bringing back those kinds of substances into the altar right. and that they didn't have kids. And mm-hmm. these are facets of some religious cults. In other words, mm-hmm. excessive alcohol, drugs, abstinence from marriage, not having children. And what the biblical author is telling us is all these are manifestations of religious extremism, which are specifically what God does not want. God wants to be the God who sets up the tabernacle so that there's a dwelling place for him on earth. He doesn't want you inventing and following all kinds of bizarre cults, rituals that have nothing to do with what he commanded. And I think it's uh, very interesting that the only other mention of Nadab and Abihu in the Bible that we see specifically is from Numbers 3-4, where we're told that they did not have children, which leads me to believe that they had, in fact, transferred their religious enthusiasm into religious extremism, into some kind of a cult. And the cult probably had, uh, Jason, what you articulated before, wine, lots of wine, too much wine, perhaps accompanied by some kind of drug. And in addition, they, the cult must have had some kind of proscription against getting married and having kids. And as we know from everything in Jewish teaching and everything in Jewish law, you have to get married, you have to have kids. So they probably joined a cult that where they didn't get married, didn't have kids, drank too much, and brought an alien or strange or prohibited fire to the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be. I mean, you know, uh, of course, you, we encounter people who are childless in uh, in the, the Tanakh, and 
usually it's seen to be uh, something that is uh, that is tragic at the very least. Um, but uh, but for somebody to voluntarily stain from from procreation certainly seems to be at odds with what uh, what is uh, prescribed. I mean, if you think about it, if 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 the only way you get priests is by continuing in the priestly line, if if half of Aaron's sons, the coin Gadol, if half of his sons aren't having children themselves, then then you're putting yourself on thin ice. That, that, that's a great point. These are half of Aaron's sons, and he is the Kohen Gadol. It's certainly a tragedy whenever in the Torah someone doesn't have a child, and it happens all the time. It happened to Sarah, happened to Hannah, and they they prey on it, but they're deeply pained, and then sometimes they have a child. Now, the, the reason why I believe this was not a tragedy, but a decision, is that they both don't have children. Right. So they're both together the entire time. They both don't have children, which leads one to believe that they chose not to have children because they decided to enter this cult. And I think the real lesson for us today is that we have to make a distinction between religious enthusiasm, which can be a wonderful thing, it is a wonderful thing, and religious extremism, which can be a terrible thing. Well, that, you know, so th- this passage is especially meaningful to me because uh, it it makes me think about my passage from uh, being a pastor in an independent non-denominational church to being a priest in the Anglican tradition. I had been a minister in a non-denominational environment for about 15 years at that point. And in, in that world, you get to choose how you lead worship. You, uh, you know, hopefully you, you get good sources but you decide what parts of the service go where, and uh, you decide what language you want to use. You really have maximal freedom to determine how to do that. The Anglican tradition is is very much opposite that. We have a prayer book, like a Siddur. We have the Book of Common Prayer uh, that gives us the language that we are to use when we lead worship. Now, we have certain choices we can make about which, which texts we read. Usually, you have a choice of saying this prayer or that prayer. In different seasons, there are different variations that you can use, but but you're told how you're supposed to do it. And so when I uh, when I went off to uh, do an Anglican year at General Theological Seminary in Chelsea, which is the oldest seminary of the Episcopal Church, now over 200 years old, during orientation week we had a we had a session in the chapel with the chief sacristan. The chief sacristan is kind of like the kind of like the top Levite. The, the person who is uh, who's organizing all of the the things that happen in order for us to worship in the in the chapel and she said you know you're going to be in here multiple times a day for prayer services for the Eucharist and as you spend time here you may notice that there are things that are done differently from how you're accustomed to you may even think about things that could be done differently you, you may have ideas for how we could improve on worship here in the uh, chapel of the Good Shepherd so uh, what I want you to do is get get yourself a notebook and and write down all your ideas in it and don't open it until you leave here and get to your parish because we don't want to hear it. Why didn't she want to hear it? Her message was, this is the way we worship in this chapel and you're going to learn to worship this way. You're going to learn to worship the way that we do it here. Now, later on, you may have adjustments that you you will want to make. And w- if you do that within the within the rubrics, within the instructions, of the prayer book, that's perfectly fine, but we're going to do it here the way we do it. And this, and and your, your responsibility here is not to conform our worship here into your image. It's to conform yourself to the way that we worship. And that's one of the things that I find in, in Torah 
is so rich. Of course, when I first encountered it, I just thought it was annoying and redundant where you'd have God telling Moses to do this, that, and the other thing. And then Torah says, and then Moses did this, that, and the other thing. Then you're like, you know, what, why did, why did, you know, when you think about uh, uh, all that's involved in, in producing an ancient book, you know, why, why waste all those words? Well, the, the point is the writer wants us to know that Moses did exactly what God told him to do the way God told him to do it. And this chapter 10 comes after nine chapters of God giving really precise instructions about how worship is to be conducted. And that comes after several chapters at the end of Exodus, talking about the construction of the, the tabernacle. And, and uh, there's a sense in which God's making it very clear, this is the way I want you to worship me. I'm telling you how this is. You don't even need to know why. You don't even need to think it's reasonable. You just need to follow. You need to obey. Uh, that's why I love, I know right now you guys are counting the Omer. Right. Uh, I love that blessing for counting of the Omer, where where you're like, okay, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. You told us to count the Omer, so 32. All right, moving on. You know, it's like, well, you know, you told us to do it, so here, we're going to do it. Right, right. Yeah. And I also think we can we can see in this, uh, in, in terms of the religious extremism, which Nadav and Abihu uh, manifested, we can we can kind of see a teaching about religion where it doesn't say God sent the fire. It says a fire came forth from before Hashem. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, the fire almost seems spontaneous. So a religious experience can be like a fire. It can light up your world. It can inspire you. It can bring heat and warmth to all who come near it. Or if you interact with it in the wrong way, if you use it to become an extremist, it can burn you. Yeah, and that's and and, and the word the word there is penai the the face right and and what does God say in Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods literally up in my face. Oh, interesting. So here the fire comes out from the face, milpne um, Hashem. And when he talks about these these men as being close to him, uh, a couple couple of verses later we have the the statement that the that that this had to be consecrated sanctified, I will be sanctified through those who are nearest me. The priests are the ones who are physically nearest to the presence of God, the Shekinah, as it is uh, present in the Holy of Holies. And so the, the high priest alone is able to enter into that space. But the priests who offer service in the tabernacle are the only ones who are permitted to get that close. If you're not called to be in that role, then that's not the place you ought to be. If you are, then you need to be serving faithfully in that space precisely the way that God has told you to do it. And I, and I think, you know, I mean, as I look at this, I, I, I probably, I'm more inclined to see, I, I don't know, maybe just be that I've, I've met too many pastor's kids. Sometimes they can have a rebellious streak. And it it, it may just be that uh, that Nadav and Avihu were, were uh, not taking their responsibilities as seriously as they should have. And uh, they decided they wanted to improvise and do their own thing. And and God just had to make it abundantly clear that he was not going to put up with that. And so, uh, pour encourager les autres, uh, in case anybody else had any clever ideas about, about doing their own thing in worship, he had to make it absolutely clear that he was not going to put up with that. But I think your, your reading of them as, as having been inclined to a much darker, a much more transgressive approach to worship. I think there's, there's a, a lot to, to that reading as well. Well, Jason, thank you. Um, now, let's get to one final question, which is not related directly to the Torah text, but instead to Andre Malru's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he, he said uh, he had just run into a man with whom he had served in the war, 
And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and uh, then had become a parish priest. And he said to the man, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are the two things that you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. The priest said, I've learned two things. He said, one is that everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. (laughs) So uh, Jason, in all your years of serving as an Anglican priest, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, uh, I should say that uh, I'm going to be drawing more on on 20 years of serving in pastoral ministry. I've only been an Anglican priest for about five. So two things that I've learned about, about humankind. I think one thing I have learned is that uh, the human capacity for self-deception is far beyond what most of us appreciate. It, it seems like a pervasive temptation that we face is to shape our understanding of reality in such a way that it becomes the way we think reality is, whether it's true or not. Very interesting. How have you seen that? Well, so an extreme example uh, of this is when people gaslight other people. When you somebody tells somebody that the sky is orange and then eventually they come to, to think that that's the reality. Well, when you do that to yourself, you don't have the opportunity for anyone else to to come in and, and make any corrections. So, you know, I think people can see People can see themselves as being far worse than they are. I certainly see that with people who are constantly thinking of themselves as being worthless, uh, when in fact, they're, of course, they have inherent dignity being made in God's image. But you also see people who think of themselves as as being far better than in fact they are. I think one of the things that I, I, I appreciate very much about our tradition is that we have in all of our services, we have a confession. We all come to God uh, on our on our faces. And admit that there is that, that there is much business that needs to be done there, but we also affirm our worth in as made in God's image and and having been uh, been chosen uh, to to serve Him. So I think yeah, that's the first probably the, the human capacity for self deception. And I think the the second thing about humanity that that I have seen is just how fragile a thing civilization is. You know, I think you and I had the privilege of you know we we went to. We went to college right after the fall of the Soviet bloc. Right. We lived through probably one of our our nation's longest eras of of peace and prosperity because we had not been part of any of the efforts to earn or to maintain the, the civilized order that we have. I think we probably have taken for granted things like the the basic conventions that enable us to function in civilized society. It was not that long ago. In fact, that's one of the things that's been especially troubling for me uh, to know about uh, about the history of our country and 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 it comes all the way to where we are. I, I, I don't know if you've been to the lynching memorial in uh, in Alabama. No, but, but we took the kids to the um, Civil Rights Museum in um, in Memphis over the summer. Yeah, it's. I mean, I and I haven't been to that one. I. I went to the lynching memorial shortly after it opened, and and as I remember, as I was walking through it, you know, they're all. I mean, it, of course, it's a, it's a it's a stunning experience, and I'm walking by all of these these pillars to the memorializing lynching victims, and you know, I see Texas and Virginia and Mississippi, and I think, oh, well, that's you know, that's something else. That's that's not me. I grew up in Connecticut, and as far as I know, none of my ancestors were on the side of the Confederacy. Nobody, as far as I know hoiled slaves. But as I kept walking along, then I see Maryland. And not only uh, were there lynching victims in Maryland, there was a lynching in the late 19th century that occurred basically a stone's throw from my church. And as I walked out of that that space where they have all of the, the memorials, which, which is covered, 
I, you know, this was, was early September in, in Alabama. So as you can imagine, it was, it was pretty hot. There wasn't a cloud in the sky and I was there dressed like a priest. So I'm there in black and the heat of the sun was just beating down on me and I could not escape it, couldn't get away. And, and there was a sense in which I felt like, you know, the, the, the judgment of the heavens upon human evil is one that we cannot escape. Makes me deeply grateful that there are provisions made for us to escape. But we human beings are, are capable of, of such wickedness. And I just, I think the, one of the fruits of civilization is that, is that we can be kept from some of our worst instincts. And I think that civilization is a, is a, a gift that, that, that we have to, we have to cultivate, we have to maintain, we lose it. And yeah, it's the wild, wild west out there. Well, that, that's what Ben Franklin said when uh, mm-hmm. he said, it's a republic if you can keep it. If you can keep it. Yep. Well, Jason, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. And I look forward to seeing you and your family as soon as we're able to do such things again. I'd like that. Well, Mark, my uh, my older daughter has just accepted at uh, Juilliard. So we're going to have more oh, excuses than usual. Thank you. To, uh, oh, that's terrific. So she'll be in a, she'll be in New York. She will be. You need any uh, you, you need any oboists for anything? You let 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 her know. Wonderful. And uh, and we, in fact, I, I uh, when I mentioned that I was going to be on your podcast, she uh, remembered fondly the the seder that we all enjoyed uh, with your family. Well, now she's going to have to come to Shabbat dinner and bring her friends uh, when when they're in New York. I'll let her know. College kids are always happy for a free meal. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm I'm uh, I'm lifting. I'm 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 raising my diet coke to you. I appreciate it. In gratitude for for our long friendship and uh, and for the uh, the joy of of uh, talking about Torah together. I'm really looking forward to hearing this whole series of podcasts, and uh, I'm I'm honored that you invited me to take part. Oh, well, thank you for participating. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thank you.